The scripture for this evening's message is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 12. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're syncing up um, preaching with, uh, with Trinity. And so I'm going, I'm doing a little bit of a review with them, and you're getting punished with repeated sermons over the same text. But it's okay. Some of you need to hear it more than once. What we're really going to focus tonight is on verse 10. Take a look at verse 10 with me. That's really going to be the, the focus of tonight. In fact, you and I talked about this, and you even said to me, there's another message in that. <laughs> there's another message in that. And let's take a look at verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I meet so many crazy notions about who God is. And I think we all, we all, have, a, we all have to pay attention to what we think, who we, who are, what our model of who God is, like how we think about God. Because inevitably, our personality and our experiences are going to cause us to drift, are going to cause our, our definitions to drift over time. It's, very, it's almost inevitable. I was thinking about all the different models, that kind of the, the pop-off, whether from pop culture or otherwise. I don't know if you, many of you remember George Burns. You see, I, this is going way before most of y'all's time, but George Burns was an old sardonic, sarcastic comedian who played God in the Oh God series, and he would smoke a cigar. And that was part of the joke, that he was playing God, because he was a jerk. We try to trade it up with Morgan Freeman. That's who y'all, that's, that's who most people recognize in this generation as the one who plays God in Hollywood. As the one who plays God in Hollywood. You know, it's funny, I think about this, think about this because I encountered three kind of general ideas, three kind of general mistakes of a God that we make up ourselves. Uh, the first one I think of is, of course, the watchmaker God. And this is the God he's removed, right? This is the God who, who kicks creation like this, kicks it off like a, like a soccer ball. And he's watching him from a distance. 
And he, he doesn't really care, right? He's just removed. It, it's just a system that's spinning, it's spinning, it's spinning, and you've all spun to this point, right? And he doesn't, he's removed. He, he isn't accessible to you and me in any meaningful way. He is the watchmaker. Then on the other side, you kind of have this, the, I don't know, kind of this, uh, what I would call the, the sentimental God, this, the, you know, the, the old grandfather, the indulgent grandfather, the, this kind of this easygoing, you know, uh, I don't know how you describe it, kind of a, uh, uh, everybody loves him. Everybody wants to hang out and bang, you know, be with him. He's just, he's, it, it, but he's sentimentalized and layered and, and all this kind of syrupy, I, I, I'm not trying to pick on people's musical tastes, but I, I, I cannot sing a song uh, that says Jesus is my best friend. I don't know why, it just doesn't. It's just weird for me. It feels schmaltzy and hallmarky and, and, and lacking. It feels sentimental. Sentimental visions of God are very, very common, by the way. Very, very common. And a very common part of church experience. And then I think of the toy God. You know, I know many years ago I used this, but have you ever said we're going to uh, Disneyland? You could Disneyland at the Haunted Mansion. There were there a little booth that you could buy a, a, a ghost dog. You ever see the ghost dog you could buy? And what it is it? It's a stiff leash with a little empty circle in the bottom, and you can walk around like you're walking a dog, like you're walking a ghost dog and nobody can see. I feel like sometimes, a lot of us, sometimes that that's a view of God. Like God's something, God's something convenient, something you pull out, something, something we all generally, generally acknowledge as imaginary, but something which, we, which, we, which is cute, and something, something that adorns our life, something that we can fit in and out, right? Where we can do as we please, or who knows? A toy God, or a sentimental God, the watchmaker God, this God, here in this text. I, you know, so what, what, what I, want, I want to begin with a theology, with, with us investigating what this claims about God, what's being claimed about God here in this text. We have to do some work of theology because we tend to drift in our perspectives. Now, the reason I call your, your attention to that 10th verse of chapter 2 is because this is the God, this is the sovereign God. Now, I don't like the word sovereign. I don't, I don't like it. it. It can be a bit stuffy and a bit, and a bit removed, right? And, and I, I don't like that. And so sometimes I use the word kingly, the kingly nature of God. But I'll tell you what I, the way I would say it right here, and I want to say, re-say, who kind of God is in verse 10? Seriously, what kind of God is this? this is the same God who in love predestined. What kind of God is this? And I thought, wait a second, I know how I would say this. This is the God who makes all the choices. Did you catch that? This is the God who makes all the choices. Everyone. This is the God that, that, this is the God that Jesus called Father. When he talked about sparrows, we talked about pigeons being captured and loved feather to feather wingtip to wingtip by the love of God. And not one of them falls. Not one pigeon falls down at the ferry building apart from the will of my father, as Christ would say. And so it's a picture of, of sovereignty, a picture of his kingliness, where he holds in himself all the decisions and all the choices that can be made. Ugh, wow. Now, this could be so forbidding to us. I, you start talking about, you know, talking about sterile visions of God, you know, and this, uh, the forbidding God, I mean, the God who's, 
the God of the chosen, right? The God, of the God who chooses, the God who makes all the choices. It can be terrifying. But here in this text, we're being guided into a vision, into good theology. How are we to understand how this God makes choices? Well, he tells us. He tells us his motive. Look at verse 4. What is his motive? In love. In, out of the great love with which he loved us. And he betrayed, plays his hand. What informs? What drives? And where do, where do his choices come from? They come from his love. Praise him. And they only come out of a love. It's a mega love. It's a big love. It's a great love. It's a love that is as great as he is. Eternal and available to us. And it's informing every choice. And God, our God, is the God who makes all the choices. That's what it means for him to be sovereign. He makes all the choices. Even about your salvation and your good works. <sighs> all right, let's keep going, let's keep going. Not only, is it, not only is this done out of a motive of love, what do we find right, in, uh, right there in that text? But God being rich in mercy. What is the attitude? I like to think of the love as being a motive and mercy being an attitude, an attitude of compassion and pity and, and desire. Ah, oh, what is this? An attitude of mercy informs every decision that God makes for his children. Praise him. You see, this is a, we're getting a picture here of how God operates in his eternity and the choices he makes. He betrays you. He betrays himself. He says, look, here's my motive. My motive is love. Here's my attitude. My attitude is mercy. Then we go on in verse 7. Out of his immeasurable, what's it, the immeasurable riches of his kindness. I like to think of his kindness as being the character of how he chooses. Like that, the character of how his it, It's the other dimension. It's the other influencing factor, right? So we see these factors in his choices. He is the one who makes, in his splendor, all the choices. And all his choices are love. All his choices are mercy. And all of his choices are kindness. And they're done with kindness. You know, uh, we, have to, we have to really, I think this is one of the reasons why we go to the scriptures, right? You know, I'm always telling you to read your Bibles in a little bit. A little bit, you can feel a little bit like when I'm telling you to read your Bibles, it's a little bit like a lecture, like I'm shaking my finger. Oh, you ought to have been reading your Bible. Did you read your Bible, Corey? You should be reading your Bible. I don't want you to think about it that way. I want you to think about your heart and your mind, wanting to know or understand a theology of God that reflects who he truly is. And the only way we can know him as he truly is, is as he has truly told us he is, as he has revealed himself. And so why do we go to the scriptures? Why, well, it's to constantly shepherd our hearts so that our vision of him is controlled by what he tells us. So we don't drift into these weird sentimentalities or these weird abstractions. You see, what's fun, it's, it, look, it's very easy, it's very convenient for many of us to keep God in abstraction because if he's love, he's right here in your face. That's, no, 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 keep, the watch, there's, a, there's a very pleasing reason to choose the watchmaker God because the watchmaker God doesn't care what you do. You see, there's, there's reasons we choose the sentimental God out of, out of an emotional need we have to be comforted by some father figure that we're searching for in this world. You see, our hearts drift as our emotional needs dictate to us new ideas or as our cravings. On what do we need the Word of God for? <laughs> we need it to constantly hear again. Oh, wait, let me attune myself. Oh, wait, 
What are the choices of God? Oh, wait, where do they come from for me? What do they mean for me? And this is just good theology. And, you know, um, and we constantly need to control our theological thinking by our reading. You know, every the stories and his own self-disclosure, we discover who this God truly is. He ceases to be an abstraction. One thing we see in Samuel, isn't it? God ceases to be an abstraction. He's right there in there with David. It's right, it's living. He is the living God. And so this, this, this idea of it's just doing the good work of theology is so essential now. It's so essential. Because it's just, it's crazy out there, right? It's crazy what people are thinking, imagining, creating, and what we ourselves can be bamboozled or distracted by. This first lesson is just how to do good theology. This text is presenting us with good theology as it presents to us the sovereign God, the God who makes all the choices. That's what that means, y'all. The sovereign God means he's the one. The kingly God makes all the choices. Now, good theology demands that we, we, we bow before a sovereign God. But then, you know, there's a second lens we can take a look at this with. And it's a lens that I think that we have to be fair about. And the second lens is, is an existential one. And it's really asking the question that immediately arises in any thinking heart that actually will listen to what God says about himself. And when God says things like this, I am the one who plans you from beforehand. I have made choices about you and what you do. What's our response of our heart? Why is anything my fault then? There's no way that you don't ask that question at some point if you are truly grasping what it means for God to claim to be the one who makes all the choices. Because we don't like all of his choices. In fact, we, we find his choices sometimes intolerable or, or horrible to us or, or just or miserable. And in this moment, you have this existential, the crisis that arises out of this text. How, I, I don't know how you evade it. I don't know how you get away, away from it. Why do I bring it up? Why am I bringing it up to point out some deep sin, some deep, dark sin we all have? No, please hear me. Please hear me. Asking the question. Asking a question about God's choices is what his son does. It's what his son does. It's the holy moment David lives in. My God, my God, where are you? Where did you go? You think there, do you think there was a play? Do you, think, do you think it was a script? Maybe Christ is acting, he's acting out the, the role. No. What does Christ say in the garden? Not as I will, but as you will. I'm not making the choices anymore. You see? He's acknowledging what about his father? What he said about the sparrow. What he said about what he says about God's choices. Not as I will, but as you will. Not what I choose, but what you choose. Uh, I, I think that the point at which we our choices and God's choices hit one another is the point at which we can worship and begin to know him. There's a possibility that the son, Jesus, the son experiences and invites us into him. He beckons you and me. He says, come, come with me. Come with me. 
Let's go before the God who makes all the choices. What shall we say to him? Not as I will, not as I choose, but as you choose. And so the son is holy in that moment. So it's a holy place of suffering when God's choices collide with ours, our wishes, and our deepest desires. Uh, now, 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 this crisis, as you, as you burr into it, it, gets, it can get more and more intense. And I, there's, a, there's a sense of his will and our will against one another. I, I have battered and thrown myself against this. And I, sometimes I think that a part of God's response to this generation and in this particular question, is to get at the demanding heart of this generation. I went five minutes in a five minutes of a microwave. I've got a full dinner, you know, and it take me three hours to go travel three thousand miles. And God doesn't answer my prayer requests in a timely fashion. And we're, we're just the demandingness in our hearts is profound. I, I, I see it in myself. Do you see it in yourself? And where's God? Come on, where's the, where's the prosperity? Where's the promise? Where's the response? Why haven't you? And I see him taking us to the place of worship that he takes Job. What does Job say? What does Job finally say when he sees the majesty? You know, I heard about you by a reputation. Now I see you in my I throw my hand over my mouth. I have nothing to say. I spoke as a man without knowledge. I don't know anything. Wow. Now, in the text, though, I think that's why there are these anchors. In the text, we need anchors. And, and one of the things we need anchors when we're in that crisis moment, when we're afraid of his choices and suspicious of what he chooses and, 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 and want to recoil or, or want to or make our own choices for ourselves and get him out of it. And in the text, there's three things that he says he describes. And we saw them before. We were raised up. We were, we were recreated. We were seated in the heavenlies. And that's what you need. I think that's one of the things you need to anchor in. You need to anchor in the finished work. Anchor in the objective work. Anchor in the blood of Christ. Anchor in what is done and sealed forever for you. You see, you need clarity when you can't see why the choices work anymore, right? And you're, and you're rolled back. You say, you keep telling me God, you know, here's a classic one. When somebody's really upset with what God chooses, do not quote to them Romans 8.28 unless you want to make them angry. It often doesn't help. In the moment of the crisis, that is a holy place. It doesn't need to be fixed. <laughs> but it does need to find its footing. And what's the footing? Even when your heart is against him and his choices, where's the footing? I've been raised up. I've been recreated. And I'm seated in his presence. You see, we have a place to stand. When, when the riot of our own thoughts and fears is threatened to capsize everything, we need, we need this text. We need these texts these tell, to tell us, what's my footing? Oh, wait. Whatever choices my father, whatever my God ordains is right. God, our Father, makes all the choices. To me, the existential lens is so essential for us to see it because it's, one, it's a question we're being asked all the time. And we can't afford to shirk it or, or treat it like it's not legitimate. It is legitimate. And it has an answer when you fall before a holy God. So let's now, 
We've looked at the theology of the text. I hope that's encouraging. We've identified that, that God is the God who chooses. His sovereign will is exercised in love, mercy, and kindness. Love, mercy, and kindness. Each one immeasurable in their own right. A big love, an abundant, rich mercy, and an immeasurable kindness. Huh, all, all grand words, immeasurable. All these, all these words beyond reckon. Or is a miserable grace to the kindness of something like that? And the third one. But now I'm interested in what to do with it. What is the ethical burden created by this? Is there an ethical burden created by the choices of God? Yes, there is. And let's take a look now at four different ways we can apply this truth. And the first way is right there in our text. It's kind of fascinating. I want you to look at, look at verse 11. He writes, he writes this amazing text. He says, you know, um, to walk in them, to walk in the things planned beforehand. And what's his application? Therefore, what? Remember what stinkers you used to be. Remember how much you stink where you come from. Does that follow to you? Why is, why, is that, is, why is that the application of that truth? Remember where you came from. Remember you were without hope. Remember you were without any promise in the world. Remember all this. Why is that the, why is that the answer? Well, I think a couple, there could be two reasons. The first reason will, I think, make, make some perfect sense to you. When you start talking about God choosing, a lot of people get conceited. It happened in the Reformed tradition. A lot of Presbyterians were the frozen chosen. You've heard that expression? Uh, the, Dutch, the Dutch Reformed Church have experienced this. If you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. Ted, isn't that right? And, and, and Dutch Calvinism, Dutch Calvinism led to a frigidity. In fact, that frigidity and that, that self-entitlement that came out of God's making us the special people, that's what Kierkegaard, that's what Kierkegaard rebelled against. He, re, he rejected and reviled this, this complacency in faith. Ugh. But it's, it's a danger for all of us. And right here he's saying, don't forget where you came from. Because remember... The Jews were God's children, and he cut them off. He goes into great detail on this in Romans 10. Don't, don't get conceited that God loves you and he makes choices for you, because if you do that, you invite his judgment. Don't forget where you come from. But I think there's a deeper lesson in this, because he's been talking about grace the whole time. It's by grace you have been saved as a gift from God. Listen to the love of God here. He's saying what got you here, what got you here is what's going to get you there. What got you here into the saving love of God will get you there to the places where you do the work prepared beforehand. And it's going to be his grace. It's the same grace, you see. He's saying, remember, the reason you're here receiving the love of God as a gift of grace is because he loved you. And guess what? That same love fires and animates and is there for us. When what? When we're out there doing the good works prepared. It's the same grace. And therefore, the, 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 the call to remember... To recall what a, what a stinker you've been and what, 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 how, how much you have just been terrible, a terrible person, is a vital way to know that a great, the grace that was sufficient to save you is also the grace that will give you power to, be, to do those good works. It's not about you. It's not about your personality. It's not about, what, not about your abilities. It, it, it's, it, it's, it's indifferent to those things. It's, those are irrelevant. He is one doing the work. You should show up. There's a, there's a wonderful, beautiful faith that we're being trusted to. Great works happen with simple Christians because of this. It's very beautiful to see. It's very beautiful to see. 
Do you see what we encourage? We encourage in this? Remember. Remember. The second, the second, uh, the second, uh, the second two applications kind of run the, run, run the there's, a, there's a tension here between the individual and the, and the group. The individual and the group. Have you guys noticed the new Smokey the Bear uh, ad campaign here in San Francisco? There is a new one out. I saw it, I've seen it a couple places up on um, Masonic. Have you seen it? It's kind of funny because I remember Smokey the Bear being kind of fat. Do you, I, I remember being kind of a big fat bear. You know? this, this is a buff bear. This bear is like trim. He's like buff. He's got a six pack and everything. And I kept thinking a buff bear. That's a good read of San Francisco. You know, so. The tagline, we all know it. Only you, only you can prevent forest fire. This is a pretty successful ad campaign. We've all heard it, right? I never liked it because I kept saying, well, isn't everybody else as responsible as I am? It just irritates me. I know it's supposed to get me to take responsibility personally for anything I do in the wild, but still, it just bugs me because it's like, "Eh." no, I know it's not true. Other people can too, but it's trying to drive the point home, right? You know what's beautiful about this text? About works prepared beforehand? I'm pretty sure only you can do the ones prepared for you. And Don Augustine, when you get to meet Don at Trinity, he's a sweet, sweet man. And we had, we had lunch this week, and he was telling me about how his best friend Carl came to Christ. Carl was a jackbooted, goth, makeup-wearing, mohawked, you know, you know, and you know what that outfit is supposed to do. When you have a jet, you have the black outfit and the, mo- and, the, and the makeup and the mohawk, what are you telling everybody? Leave me alone. It's a wall. I'm, a, I'm scary. Leave me alone. Now, I could be hiding in security. You had all sorts of stuff behind that. But Don, I remember Don saying, I didn't even see any of that. I just saw my friend, and I had become a Christian. I was hanging out with him to tell him about Jesus, and I, and I wanted to invite him to church, and I... And, I, and, and he would listen to me, and finally he, he came. And I, and I remember thinking, you know, that's, he's one of, that's one of those places. Only Don was the one who could reach this guy. He's the only one. And I, I'm going I'm to dare this. When it comes to things prepared beforehand, this is very personal, y'all. There's things only you can do, Corey. Places only you can go. This is only I can go. Only you, Carol. Each one of us. This is a very personal promise. Only you can do the things God's prepared for you. Hmm. And I, I, I just want to walk in that with hope, with joy, with, with possibility. You know, I, I, somebody sent me a little text meme recently. Um, walk in the room like God sent you there. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> walk in the room. Yes! Yes! Because all the places God has sent you, remember, he makes all the choices. All the choices about your life. So every place you are is an anointed place for the Spirit and for you to be there. You ever think of some of the ugly places you have to live sometimes? That's that's the truth about what God's doing? Wow. So Don invited his friend Carl to church. And eventually he came in his jackboots and his black outfit with his eyeliner and his mohawk and and, he ca- and Don invited him to the church. And he became a Christian. Because he knew Don loved him. Don was a friend. 
These people had no reason to love him, to be kind to him, to show him, show him sweetness and welcome and friendship and love and kindness, especially with his big old boots, because, you know, that's, those are all scary things. They weren't scared. And he gave his life to Christ. You know what that reminds me of the second, the third point I'm making today, the third application. This is all in the plural. Look at it. We. It says we in that text. Look in, cha- look in chapter 2, verse 10. He's prepared for us. This is all plural. Why is that so vital? Because that's a part of this, that's a part of his choices. <laughs> that's, I think it's funny to me. I think it's a part of me. Yeah, I know that's just a part of me. Look, look, I'll be honest with you. If things were if things were banging and we were doing really well, I wouldn't want to talk to Trinity. I wouldn't, I don't need them. Why would we need them? I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be open to it in the slightest. Because we would have our thing. What do we need anybody for? But I'll tell you what I love about God is when he starts to knock down that arrogance and knock down the self-reliance and knock down that well, I can do it and knock me down so I need somebody else. That is the good, that's one of the good works, right? When we neglect loving and presence with one another, when we're not showing up for the good works he's appointed with each other, well, we're just, we're just, we're just cheats. We're cheats. I don't want to be a cheat. I was thinking about this. I, I've never had more success. And I think, well, we, don't, we never led anybody to Christ. But we had more theological discussions when Ted and I would tag team sharing the gospel at a bar than I've ever gotten into conversations with somebody before. <laughs> because there's something about us together that this promise is, seems, it's exponential, right? It's not just more. It's, 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 it's huge. The promise is to us as a church. Don't you want it together? I want it. I want to taste it. I want to have it. I want to have it with you. Finally, the final point I want to make about this is the God who makes all the choices. I, I, um, I remember, um, you know, it's very hard not to the way we talk when we talk in evangelicalism. Uh, Joyce actually corrected my language years ago. I haven't completely corrected it yet, but I used to often say I led people to Christ. And it's just, it's a parlance thing. It's a, it's a very common expression in the 20th century evangelicalism. It is not particularly biblical. <laughs> it's not a biblical phrase. And I, I use it very frequently. But do you catch, do you catch who's, who, who, who's, taking, who's taking the credit there? I am. Now, whether I mean to or it's implied, if it's not implied, that's what some people will think, that it was my work that did it. That somehow I did something in that. And those turns of phrase, I think, can be very important, don't you? What's so beautiful about the idea that God makes all the choices and that we are going to walk in what is prepared before him? Well, it's not you. It's in point of fact, not you at all. Praise him for that. I find this a great relief. Look, at any given moment, I have, a, I have a thousand reasons to be good as a pastor, and very few of them are good reasons. 
Why? Well, if I'm a good person, I can impress you, and you'll have more confidence in me, and I, and, and, and I can increase my, my, my leadership capital and, and have more success in what I call people to do. If I'm a good person, then people will listen to me more. If I'm a good person, I don't have to worry about screwing up. If I'm a good... Look, you have, like, there's a lot of motives for me. There's a lot of motives for you, too. There's all sorts of reasons why we could be good, right? And our flesh loves to be good for bad reasons because we love to parade our greatness in front of people, right? And so when I have, when I, I know this, like, all right, so I felt called by God last night. I was in prayer, and I was, calling, I was thinking about that this morning, too. I tested it this morning in prayer. But I want to start praying every morning of the week. And you know what my first response to that was? What are you doing that for? Who, 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 who are you trying to impress with that? What's, what's the point? What's the point? What, 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 what credits do you think you're getting for this? Is this, is, this a, is this a vision ploy in order to create vision for the church? What are you up to, Chris? What are you up to? So I want to go back to my Father in heaven. I go, Father, is this you? Because if this is me, I don't want anything to do with it. I want what's only you. <laughs> and then when I get a sense it is him, well, that's great. Because I can believe in that. I want you to develop a habit like that I'm trying to develop. Remember we talked about this. Corey and I talked about this in prayer. Of really crediting to God that when we are good, it is of him, it is through him, and it is to him. Praise him. When you're good, when you're good to your wife, when you, when you, when you, when you, say, when you say the word that you should have said in the, in the moment of evangelism, when you're in the good deed place and, you, and, you, and you're sacrificial, or when you're inviting and loving, and all the different ways we can manifest God's love in the world, and all the ways we do, and all the wonderful ways it happens in our community as we're called to each other, he makes all the choices. We can, we can kind of, we can, I, I, I feel like I can finally rest. I can rest in him because, you see, I, I, I bring filth to the table all the time. I can't help it, right? I'm always bringing a double motive. I'm always conniving in the back how I can leverage something. And so are you. But, Craig, this frees us from all that. That there is a, there's a way God is moving among us and will move through us. And that of him and through him, and we can have prayer that's of him and through him and to him. We can, we can be obedient in ways that are of him and through him and to him. And we could say, you made all the choices here. Praise you. I, 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 don't, I, I want to be set free by this. I have found myself reminding myself of this constantly with joy. Because you see, to me, this is a way out of the trap that I find is in my own soul because my flesh is such... There's just this ugly, ugly Chris inside me, right? Who constantly... You've met him. Uh, constantly, wants to, constantly wants to make things work for me. And then I hear my God who makes all the choices saying, you know, I'm bigger than you are. I'm bigger, I'm holier, I'm greater, and I can make beautiful things out of even your mixed up motives. That should be a relief to all of us. How many, of you, how many times have you just felt like giving up because you didn't have the right motive? You couldn't, fe- you wonder why you were doing something. Ah, this is where God's sovereignty feels like a warm, a warm, warm cover in the cold of night. For it's Him that work. You know, this is, you know, it's funny. What Ephesians 2.10 is another way of saying Philippians 2, right? That pa- wonderful passage. 
work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. This is just another way of saying that here, right? It's the same, it's the same sentiment, it's the same idea. You know, look, look you know, I began with this picture like we, uh, that we make up our own God. We have to be so careful of that because when we do that, we make up a homunculus. A, a homunculus was this uh, picture from Jewish mythology of, of, of like somebody being, of some creation of different pieces, like a Franken God, right? We don't want that. I don't want anything to do with that. And the sovereign God, as he is proclaimed here in the text, absolute sovereignty is my, is my comfort, guide, and hope. Um, but um, that last word, workmanship, God's workmanship. If I give up the God I make up, and I trust the God who's declared to me here in his sovereign power, is the God who makes all the choices, I feel like I'm in the place where, where I can be his workmanship. I was thinking about um, when, like when a child is, um, it, the, word, well, the word in workmanship is poieia, and it's from where we get the word poem. And I remember my own self, when I'm writing, when I'm very carefully writing something, I'm so absorbed. I remember uh, when you watch kids when they're playing with crayons or any kind of art, and we'll watch, they go into a zone, and there's nothing but them in the medium, and they're just smearing all over paper, and they're right in it. And that's the way God is with us, I think. And there's an intention and a passion and a power at play in him working out righteous things in you and me and in our hands and heart and our community. And it is his delight to do this. It is his passion. He has eyes on. And I, yeah, I guess, I guess one of the first times in my life I've, I, can, I really feel that's what God is doing to me. Praise him. Let's pray. Dearest Father, and I ask for work that we can't do. <laughs> we ask for things that we, we barely understand at times. And you are the God who makes all the choices. <laughs> Help us um, in our theology to hear what the word says, to, to acknowledge it, to sharpen ourselves in it and with it. We ask Holy Spirit for the, the wisdom to be good theologians, to be, to be wise about who you are. Father, we go beyond that, though. We go beyond that. We ask all scope for you'd help us in our crisis, in the crisis of our own will. Well, we make very bad choices, Father. We know that. And yet, even with all of our bad choices, we get angry that you're going to make choices for us. <laughs> We're so foolish. Will you teach us how to trust you in the dark? How to say, will you teach us how to say, not as we would choose, but as you choose, Father? And finally, would you just put this to good use in us? <laughs> put it to good use in us. Teach us how to show up. Teach us how to walk in trust. Teach us how to remember that the grace that got us here will get us there. You are the loving, merciful, kind God all the way through from the cross, from our election to the cross, to what we're supposed to do Tuesday. Father, we thank you for your work tonight. We pray that it would bless our hearts and we would grow in and through it. And we would be able to give you all the glory for what you're doing through us. In Jesus' name.
Amen.